Welcome to Let the Boys Kiss, the creation of queer ships, where we ask the question, is it queer baiting, queer coding, or queer canon? This week we'll be discussing, wait, what are we discussing? What we're not discussing. So we're not going to talk about it? No, we're talking about it. Talking about what? What we're not talking about. Oh, right. We're talking about the ships we're not going to talk about later in the podcast. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. about deciding what we're not going to talk about how did we do well this 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 idea came to us uh because there are certain ships that i think are fairly common slash ships that we would be expected to have opinions about and and we just didn't for whatever reason and we thought how can we discuss them without discussing them in a way that will satisfy questions um and so we looked to as we always do the AO3's list of their top 100 ships from 2020 and we sort of methodically went down the list and checked off the ones we did talk about or plan to have episodes about and we're going to address most of the remaining things on the list with a few exceptions. Yes. So we pulled out all the the M/M ships from the list. Uh we did. and uh we're just going to we're going to walk through them and we've kind of organized them into a couple different buckets. Uh mm-hmm. the first is canon we've generally covered, but specific ships within that canon we didn't dive into. Mm-hmm. Um things that we have seen or have read a lot about or just generally familiar with, but stuff we don't necessarily have a lot of thoughts about. Right. Um and then we're going to get into some canon that we're not as familiar with, but seem to have interesting stories behind them. So we've done some research. Yes. Um, we're going to talk through them and you all will have to be the judge of how accurate our research was. Yeah. Please do let us know if we've completely mischaracterized an entire ship or show that we have not seen. But uh, a fun game for the eagle-eared listener. I guess you can see what we've covered already and what we talked through in this, in this podcast and then get a sense of what we might cover in the future indeed spoilers so to get this out of the way i guess let's start with the canon universes we've already discussed but the ships in them that we aren't going to really spend any more time talking about so the first is the mcu obviously stucky was our first episode um but there were a couple of other ships in the top 100 that we didn't dive into uh so Mm -hmm. steve and tony clint and phil that we were not aware of, but I find truly adorable. Yes, we were delighted by it. Loki and Tony. Another one where I was sort of like, huh, who knew? Yeah, and then Bucky and Tony. Which, for some reason, I find just shocking. <laughs> I don't know why. There's something about Bucky and Tony where I'm like, how could they do that to Steve? That you know? is my emotional reaction as well. Like, I see Steve and Tony, and I'm like, I get it. But Bucky and Tony, sure. it's like, hurtful. <laughs> Well, they only know each other because of Steve, yeah. you know? Like, that's are, are, is this behind Steve's back? I hope I not. Don't know. I hope not. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. You know, we talked about Tony and Steve's relationship a little bit in the Stucky mm-hmm. podcast because it's hard to talk about Civil War and not talk about And Steve leave that out, yeah. Um, but... Tony really is, right, the other kind of lead character in the MCU. So it makes sense that people would have a lot of investment in him. But 
the real odd men out are Clint and Phil, which is just cute. I like it a lot. I think it's sweet. <laughs> I do remember them interacting in like early days Avengers movies, but I it never would have occurred to me. But I do find them both to just be like lovely folks, you know? <laughs> I'm glad people are shipping them. Just two human men in this world of supermen. This world of insane stuff going on. That's true. I wonder if they bond over the fact that they're both just regular old humans. Yeah. It's nice. <laughs> it seems it nice. Is nice. <laughs> so there's another Marvel ship on the list, which um, we're also not going to dive into. It's not really an MCU ship, but it's Peter Parker and Wade Wilson, uh, Spider-Man and Deadpool. So I think this also kind of falls into the category of things we're not super familiar with. I am not incredibly familiar with Deadpool as a character. No, I've seen, I think, just the first of the Ryan Reynolds Deadpool movies. But obviously there's no, I think this ship must come from the comics because I've never seen them interact on screen. Right. So it's a bit outside of our awareness. The next canon we've covered is The Hobbit. The ship that we did not get into is Bilbo and Thorne. I guess we didn't really cover The Hobbit. We covered Lord right. of the Rings uh, and we, Tolkien. We took a moment to talk about The Hobbit. We did take a moment to talk about The Hobbit. So, you know, I, as I mentioned in our Lord of the Rings podcast, I have seen all three Hobbit movies. I've read The hmm. Hobbit. I really don't like those Hobbit movies. <laughs> So not into talking about Bilbo and Thorin, I think is where we've landed on that. I think that's understandable. Uh, Another one from the list from a property we have already discussed is the BBC's Sherlock. The ship is Mycroft and Lestrade. I was also surprised to see that as a ship. I don't know. Yeah. So that's like Mycroft, Sherlock's brother, and Lestrade is the cop guy that is always working with uh, Sherlock. I don't remember them interacting I feel like their only bond is that they're like the keepers of Sherlock. Like I imagine that they must commiserate with each other about what it's like to deal with him. (laughs) You know? Right. It's interesting too, right? Because Sherlock views everyone around him as idiots and Mycroft Mm -hmm. views Sherlock as an idiot. So it's interesting that he would hang out with this double plus idiot Lestrade. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. It's so weird. But I mean... Mycroft is his whole thing is like no human connection right I don't really know how you would write even more than Sherlock his whole thing is no human connection so maybe Lestrade is the one who breaks down all his walls oh that is sweet but also I don't really have anything to say about it yeah uh and then Harry Potter Mm-hmm. So in Harry Potter, we ended up not even talking really about the big ship in Harry Potter, which is Dreary. Dreary. But it was mentioned. So the other couple of ships that pop up on the top 100 are Sirius and Lupin, which I think makes total sense. Yeah, total sense. And then something horrifying that I wish had <laughs> never crossed in front of my face. This one was also very surprising uh, to me as a <laughs> lay person. Uh, it is... <laughs> Harry Potter and Severus Snape. I think it's not for us. It's not for us. That's true. It's not for us is where we will leave it. But I don't know, guys. The whole, uh, this, the, the amount that Snape talks about Harry's eyes looking like lilies, I don't know. It's very, in some ways, even Sharon Carter, which we also it's didn't care for. Ill-advised. But that was canon, for God's sake. That was. That was. At least she wasn't worse. a child. <laughs> she was not a child not into this so yep (laughs) i think we could probably leave it at that (laughs) yep okay so that kind of covers the canon we've covered and sort of ships within that i think the winner honestly from that group of ships 
Clinton Phil. I agree completely. That was a delightful surprise to me, and I am intrigued by it. Maybe enough to even go check out the AO3 and see what's going on over there. Okay, so that brings us to the canon we've not covered, but not something that we were either able to find a lot of interesting information or narrative around, or again, we just don't have a lot of thoughts. Mm -hmm. So the first in that category is Inception. Uh, which is a movie that which we I have love. both seen. Yes, yeah. you love it. I love. It. I think it's good, but not great. But you yeah, love it. I do. <laughs> so you should have thoughts about this if anyone will. So uh, it's Arthur and Eames, who I've learned have the nickname Dream Husbands, which is very which, cute. Which I mean, that's enough for me to be interested in it. That's adorable. And one of the things that I think was interesting about this is I was really surprised that this was still on the list at number eighty six. So this movie came out at this point 11 years ago. Yep. Um, I don't, I mean, I think, you know, people still generally like Inception, but it's not something that I feel has a huge fandom still around it. It's not Yeah. something you just like are constantly seeing things about, which is, again, not to say there aren't still fans of it. I'm still right. But it. yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I feel like it's, it's cultural moment passed right. a little bit ago. And it's interesting, too, because it is this sort of one-off movie, right? There's not a lot of canon around it. So I was just a little surprised. We went back through the list on AO3 of um, the most popular ships for each year. And obviously, it really blew up initially when the movies came out. And the earliest AO3 list is in 2013. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the, uh, the additional fiction written each year, it's not a ton. So I think they, they built up at least like half of their total number of fix right. around 2013. And then since then, it's been probably less every year. Yeah. So it was just interesting to see that in order to be still on the top 100, you just had to have like a huge influx of fan fiction right around the time that the thing was created and not necessarily after the fact. So I was still surprised. Yeah. I was also surprised because 2010 was around peak my personal Tumblr usage. And I don't remember seeing anything about the shipping, which... Which is wild, because you were an Inception fan. You were yes. on Tumblr, and you were sharing Inception memes. Yes. But the ship just didn't ever it reach you. passed me by, which is maybe a testament to how, you know, you can be in different parts of a fandom and not know about other parts. I don't know if sure. it was a question of, in 2010, like, what Tumblr was like and maybe tumblr has shifted like i don't know if you could do that now and still avoid the shipping parts of the fandom on tumblr hard to say yeah i don't know um but yeah i went back and i looked at my inception tumbling in 2010 and i was like hey great memes still laughing at the memes <laughs> but yeah nothing about dream husbands but i like it and i love the nickname so yeah glad to see inception on the list it is a film and i, I mean tom hardy any day in whatever ship. I mean, I'm here you, for it. You mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling, is what he says. Exactly. <laughs> Come he, on. And then he pulls out that rocket launcher. Yeah, I mean, it's I, in, in theory, all for it. Yes. I am pro this ship. So I think we have to move on to what I will have been considering the like elephant in the room of queer ships. Um, one that I see everywhere all the time on the internet and just for my own reasons, have no desire to talk about. And that is Merlin and Arthur from Merlin. I know that this is an extremely popular ship and, and I totally get it. It's got like all the hallmarks, you know, they're 
friends kind of they start kind of as enemies they're bonded to each other they you know are totally devoted to each other's cause and stuff and merlin has like a secret right a secret he can't yes merlin has a secret and and from like the the meta that i have encountered around this show it's a pretty clear metaphor for homosexuality is like the entire bit of the right so because it's like uh, he's a he's a wizard magician he does magic yeah and in this world that is illegal and uh so he has to keep it a secret from everyone and including his best friend who he's in love with and you know drama ensues you can imagine why this is fandom ship bait my my own personal issue and i know that we are not spoiler averse on this podcast, but if anyone is spoiler averse, I'm about to give a big spoiler for this show. I found out that Merlin doesn't tell Arthur that he does magic until the literal last episode of the show. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was just like, then what's the freaking point? You know, like in my mind, the things that I would have wanted to see from it just are clearly not going to happen. Well, also doesn't Arthur reject him and then it ends with I think that they I think he does initially but then like well because Arthur dies at the end and then Merlin because this is from the legend too right like yeah Arthur is supposed to be reborn at some point and retake his throne as the king of you know England right so Merlin has to just like wait around for a couple thousand years for him to come back um but it's like he kind of rejects him but then I think they kind of maybe make it not a huge rejection so that it's not the saddest thing in the whole world but it just seems like it is i found out too much and then i was completely turned off and now i've seen i think one episode of merlin and i don't plan to go back (laughs) yes and i didn't watch merlin either and you know i guess it could be a thing i could be into because i do love arthurian stuff sure yeah it's right up your alley so we're pretty sure we're not covering this one but it seems like queer baiting it does it seems like to, yeah, if we're going to ask the question about each of these ships, I believe everyone when they say this is like a really clear cut case of queer baiting and to, down to the fact that the, it is like a literal metaphor for for uh, closeted homosexuality. But but then it's like even more of a bummer because I think he sort of comes out to his friend and then his friend doesn't accept him. I don't know. I can't get into it. It's not it's not for me. You know too much. Exactly. Maybe if it had been a surprise. But then imagine how mad you'd be if you watched it for five years and then you watched the end and you were like, well, damn. I mean, a lot of shows with, with bad endings around a lot queer of stuff that we have, have covered and may cover in the future. Yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong. Spoilers, there's some bad endings coming in our future. Yeah. Um, but I think I'll leave it at that because I don't want to bash it too much. I know a lot of people love the show. Well, we haven't seen it, so it's hard to. I can't. I can't really bash because I haven't seen it. Yeah. But I can have my own not super well informed opinions about it. Absolutely, that's your that's your right as an American. That's my right as an American and a citizen of the internet. So let's move on from that to something that seems a lot more delightful, even though I have the same amount of knowledge about it, basically. So same. a lot of you may have heard of Netflix's The Witcher, which kind of had like a huge moment a year ago. Did it come out around the Christmas yeah. before last? Yeah, and I'm I sure like you I know. Remember. 
quarantine times have helped because everyone's at home just binging all the things. Yes. The Witcher is this show based on, I don't know, is it based on the video game, which is based on the novel? Is it based on the novel and the video game is also based on the novel? I don't know. Oof. Something in there is correct. (laughs) So there is a video game and a novel and a television series and somehow they're all related to each other. And they're following this guy named Geralt. Just and Yaskir. To, to forewarn you, we uh, think that that's how you pronounce their names, Geralt and Yaskir, but we very well could be wrong. Yes, I've watched some clips and compilations and that seems to be how they are yes. pronouncing each other's names. So we have this guy, Geralt, who I think is the Witcher. I mean, we've clearly done a, a, a lot of research on this. <laughs> so yeah. he's going around in the show doing his business. Yaskir is like this troubadour guy that follows him around and writes songs about him. And they have a whole... You know, Geralt's like seems like the grumpy one, and Yaskier yeah. is like. And the... being a witcher seems to make you some kind of social outcast, or he is a social outcast, and he's also the witcher. Something in there is also correct, I think. Right, I think you're right that he's a social outcast, but I don't know. Uh, but I know that yeah, he's like grumpy, and then Yaskier is his best friend who sings songs about him and seems kind of bubbly. Um, this ship from what I have gathered from the internet, seems sort of like a a mostly angst-free, happy, fun time ship. Like, the stuff that I found people saying about it was, well, because I guess you have to know that in the canon, Geralt is supposed to end up with this woman called Yennefer. And in the meantime, he's just, like, going about his business hanging out with Yaskir. The the fans seem to be like, that's all well and good, man. Like, can't he just hook up with Yaskir in the meantime? Or, like, can't the three of them end up together? That's fun, too. (laughs) So, I... There don't seem to be any, like, ship wars, and what I'm seeing seems to show that the show has made the Yaskier-Geralt relationship kind of even closer than it was in the preceding canon. Um, So, of course, people are leaning into it, and, I mean, how are we supposed to read this when a guy just follows around his friend and sings songs about how great he is the whole time? You know, now that we're talking about and describing it, I wonder if there's also, like, Xena warrior princess vibes. Oh, hell yeah. I like that. Um, Because, you know, it's a like a a big, strong person who's serious with their like peppy younger companion. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sure anyone who's on the internet has seen um, the pictures or gifs or whatever of Henry Cavill's Geralt in the bathtub. Because that seemed to be everywhere all the time. And when he is taking that bath, yes, gear is there just like perched on the edge of his bathtub from close range i guess having a conversation with him i don't know it's um it's close it doesn't it's close they're close i i heard that they sort of ramped up yes gears like womanizing nature in the show i guess in an effort to make it seem less gay i don't know (laughs) Uh, and also, Yaskir's name is supposed to stand for, uh, or not stand for, it means buttercup in the original language, but they changed it to dandelion for the show because they thought it seemed less feminine. I don't know. The whole thing is a little weird. Yeah. But why can't they just at least make out a little bit? I don't know. It seems like they would be into it. It seems like they definitely could. It's on Netflix. Let them kiss. What's, what's the problem? Exactly. So it seems like the fans feel that way too. What's the problem? So the next piece of canon, which we also didn't know very much about, and is sort of in a, a 
medium that I don't think we're going to cover at all. Right. So it was interesting to see it on the list. Yes. Is a video game called Ooh. Dragon Age Inquisition. And I mean, what a title. And when we came across it in the AO3 list, we were initially confused because we were like, what the Inquisitor? What does this mean? What it, there was like a, it wasn't even M slash M. It was like M slash like uh, undecided or something. Okay. <laughs> or like whatever the phrase was. It was like, yes. So we were like, is this like a ship between a person and a dragon? <laughs> right. We weren't quite sure what was happening. It's like a genderless being. Because in the ones where it's a self-insert character, it says like you or reader and not mm-hmm. just ambiguous. I think it was like M slash Ambiguous. A-M-B. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're like, what does this mean? So um, the way that the video game works is you play as the Inquisitor. And Uh you can be, like, several different types of Inquisitors, like species, genders, whatnot. And so depending on the Inquisitor you choose, uh, part of the game is having options for romance. And one of the characters, I guess, has really caught the the fandom's eye, Cullen Mm. Rutherford. Ooh, Um, what a name. Cullen Rutherford can only be in romantic relationships with female inquisitors and maybe like certain species of female inquisitors like female human inquisitors damn man and so we saw that and we were like yeah we were like what the hell if in in any world you should be able to do whatever the hell you want it's a friggin' video game where you're in a dragon world (laughs) why do you have limited options let whoever romance colin rutherford yeah in the game there are eight love interests all of them aren't available depending on the Inquisitor. So people have obviously written fan fiction about uh, the Inquisitor being a male in Cullen Rutherford, but also, and this would be something specific, right, to video games, uh, people have made mods of the game where you can mm-hmm. uh, be a male and then romance Cullen Rutherford. or yeah. uh, Live your dreams, people. Yeah. <laughs> but it was also interesting because they're... Basically, there are mods available for anything. And there apparently was some controversy within the community of mods that allowed uh, exclusively gay characters, one in particular named Dorian, to be straight because there are so few clearly gay characters within gaming. Well, it it sounded also like his storyline kind of was like explicitly about his sexuality. So then I had to, I have to imagine that made it kind of weird (laughs) probably (laughs) to turn him into a straight character. Yes. So there was some controversy around that, but you know, I think it's cool that they're able to mod the game to allow you to, as a male inquisitor, romance Colin Rutherford. They also said it's, it's funny because I guess if I remember this correctly from what I read, the elves are, are tall. They're like tall elves. Mm-hmm. And Cullen Rutherford cannot romance an elf. So if you mod the game he's too to... short? Yeah, if you mod the game to let him be an elf. There's a scene in the game where he's supposed to be leaning down to kiss his love interest, but instead he's just motorboating the elf character. Because that's... That's exceptional. I was like, awesome. I love everything about that. So this was an interesting example, and I feel like we really learned something we really did so to move along to another ship that we don't have any canon experience with you may have heard if you are on tumblr that's how i've heard of this of the animated series voltron and particularly 
the um, ship Keith and Lance, or Clance. There, I guess, also is a ship between characters Keith and Shiro, but that's one that I had not really encountered and didn't seem to be as big of a, you know, part of the fandom. Mm-hmm. So I dig into this because, you know, we're doing this exercise. And while it is hugely popular, I think in t- 2017, it was the Tumblr ship of the year. The most oh, wow. talked about ship on Tumblr. Other than that, there really didn't seem to be anything super, like, different. The premise of the ship, at least, not of the show, because I don't mm-hmm. know anything about the show and don't want to get into it. It looks like there's, like, space involved, but I don't really know. Um, but it, one of them, Keith, is, like, this, you know, solemn, quiet, loner type. And mm-hmm. then Lance Classic. is, is like, a goofball. It's it's the... It's the yeah. Geralt Yeskier relationship sure. all over again. And so this seems to be like the thing that's driving people to the show is their relationship and how they start as enemies and then they become like partners and really close and they rely on each other. Other than that, like everyone's vibe was the show has its ups and downs. It's okay. It's not amazing, but the ship's really great. And so I think that's sort of like all that's going on here really is <laughs> so that people like the dynamic of the characters they're writing about it but it, nothing that i found led me to be like it's a unique oh there's right narrative or like a unique fandom drama that was happening or anything i was sort of just like oh okay sounds like some enemies to friends to lovers thing and you're like okay just a classic ship so i mean please tell me if i'm wrong and there's like some weird thing I missed about it but to me it just seemed like a pretty classic regular old ship which more power to you I love it but yeah. probably not a lot gonna, to say about it and I don't we're not familiar with the canon so it's yeah so yeah. that's Voltron for you <laughs> but Voltron sort of leads us into an entire swath of ships that we're not going to talk about because we just really are not familiar with the canon yeah, so uh, Voltron animated. I don't think we're covering any animated material. We don't plan to. No. Um, and obviously on the AO3 Top 100, there are a lot of ships from anime. So, like a lot of ships from anime. Like it feels like maybe like a quarter of the list. Yeah. I don't think either of us are people who don't like anime, like full stop. <laughs> sure, no. But I would call myself someone who has limited knowledge about anime. There are, you know, a number of animes that I truly love, but none that are on this list, unfortunately. So Mm -hmm. um, there are four ships from My Hero Academia, three ships from a show called Haikyuu. Haikyuu. With exclamation points. Haikyuu, Haikyuu, I'm not sure, but they're excited about it and I appreciate that. Yes. One ship from a show called Bungo Stray Dogs, which we read about and seems really cool, but I haven't watched it. And also, I mean, the title's incredible, guys. Yes. A ship from Attack on Titan, a ship from Naruto, two ships from Yuri on Ice, which you've seen a little I've bit seen of. at least the first season of, I think, but it's been years. I remember them being, or at least the, like, Victor and Yuri, the main ship, what I would call, like, semi-canon, maybe? <laughs> it definitely feels like they're writing to their relationship, but they don't, like, make out or anything, because... You know, that doesn't really happen in, in the anime that I've seen, at least. But they they do seem to be at least queer coded, okay. these ships. Yeah, so uh, that's sort of all the anime that's on the list. And I think some of my reticence to also dive in or talk about what's happening in anime is the potential for there to be 
like real cultural differences that I don't have the expertise to really talk about. And we have the expertise to talk about anything that any of the things we're talking yes, about. We have a lot of expertise <laughs> yeah. in other areas. I feel much less comfortable talking about, yeah, like queerness in other cultural contexts. Yeah. Um, which also leads us into another uh, thing on the list, not a Japanese anime, but a Chinese animated series called Modao Zushi, mm-hmm. which am I pronouncing that correctly? God only knows. Which is um, based on a novel, an online published novel, and has also been adapted into a live action show called The Untamed, which we've also seen is very popular. Yeah, and I didn't realize that I'd been seeing pictures of these guys from The Untamed all over Tumblr and just having no idea who they were. So that was interesting. So the characters in question are, and again, I'm sorry, (laughs) uh, Wei Wuxan and Lan Anji. And so they come out of this online novel uh, where in China, these online publishing platforms apparently have become more popular in recent years and uh, driven in large part by, quote, click-generating boys love novels. Ooh, boys um, love. Yeah. And so authors who reach a certain number of views then get signed on as contract authors, and then they can receive payments. So it's not something that's being published through, like, I guess what in China would probably be, right, state-owned publishing houses. I would um, think, yeah. Which is interesting, right? Because we talked in, I think, both the Stucky and the Finpo episode about how part of Disney's reticence to have there be clear gay couples is the inability to sell the movies then in China. Mm-hmm. So I was like, how is all of this happening? One of the things that I read was that in 2016, which is so recently, China passed a law saying you can't show gay content on television. So like, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell, sodomy is not illegal in China. Being gay is not like illegal in China. They just don't want it you know quote unquote promoted sure no talking about it yes no promoting a gay lifestyle um (laughs) but again getting into like the cultural components there's also a lot of discussion around how Taoist magical um material was banned for a long time as well and considered taboo for a long time and that there's a lot of that in this show also but the two characters are these quote unquote heaven mandated partners as they're seeking Ooh. the Tao. Yeah. Um, and it's a way of them justifying the homosexual relationships. Um, and kind of throughout all these boys love uh, novels, uh, there's just like a lot of gayness. So it seems great. I started watching the show. I just didn't have time to finish it. I'm not sure we're going to end up talking about it more because um the animated version is on YouTube, but it's all uh, subbed. So you really have to pay attention. Yeah. Right. You can't <laughs> not just a... throw it on in the background and fold no. your laundry. So we're not going to dive into it, I think, any more than, than this. But it's all very interesting. I guess we should move on to some more that we found interesting, you know, tidbits about that we necessarily weren't expecting. Getting back to the Western Yes, we're coming back to the West. I will begin with Les Mis, the musical 
slash Victor Hugo novel that everyone I'm sure is familiar with. I am a huge fan of this musical. I love the music and I've been listening to it for, you know, a lot of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, it is very recent knowledge to me that there is this very popular ship from Les Mis, popular enough to be in the top 100 on AO3. And it's between characters who are not the characters I think of when I think of the characters from Les Mis. So this is Uh, also an interesting example, right? Uh, in terms of, uh, like, again, like, the media, only musical on the list. Only musical we're probably ever going to be talking about. So, yeah, just worth noting. We have a lot of interesting, it's a it's a grab bag today. So this is a shit between Enjolras and Grantaire, who, if you're like me, a casual fan of Les Mis, you might not have ever heard their names. <laughs> so I've only Enjol- seen Les Mis once. I didn't know yeah. who they were. <laughs> Well, I've listened to the soundtrack like hundreds of times, but they don't really get shout outs. So Enjolras is sort of like the leader of the student revolutionaries in the 2012 movie. Whenever that movie of Les Mis came out, um, he's played by Aaron Tveit, who if you know Broadway actors, you probably know. But it was interesting to dig into this ship because what I found is that it's like a vaguely sort of canon ship at this point. Um, There's been a long journey, even from back in the day of the Victor Hugo novel, about the subtext of these characters. So I think people generally consider them non-canonical in the novel, but then when you sort of dig into that, I'm not sure that's the case. The, Mm -hmm. the, The novel presents them as like a duo, they're, they're all often in scenes together, like most of the time you see them, they're in scenes together. They're, they are referred to as a pairing. And Victor Hugo uses a lot of historically queer couples to compare to them. So there's like Achilles and Patroclus who are often talked about as yeah. being a, a, a queer relationship. And then they just like a long list of of queer couples throughout history that he uses to compare these guys to. So you're sort of like, Victor Hugo's no dummy, right? Like purposeful. (laughs) It seems like he's not just pulling random pairs of people out of a hat and they happen to all be gay and he's comparing them to these guys. So I think there's probably more of a conversation to be had about what Victor Hugo decided about these couple or these guys. But in the intervening years, since the musical has come out, there's been sort of a movement towards canon for these guys. Mm-hmm. So the subtext gets played up more and more in all of these productions. Uh, they are like hugging, they're stroking hair, they're kissing each other's hands, depending on the actors. So since about like the mid 2010s, I'm told, a lot of stage productions are basically presenting this relationship as canon. So we're sort of moving in that direction, which is interesting. But it seems like I dug into a tiny bit of the the evidence from not just the adaptations, but from all the way back to the novel. And Angel Ra, I guess, is like just an intellectual. He's presented as having no interest in women or relationships or whatever because he has to. He's dealing with the the French Revolution for God's sake. He's got other things to worry about. And so he's like the focused intellectual one. And Grantaire is sort of like a drunk and, uh, you know, interested in all sorts of relationships. He's written as looking tenderly and fixedly upon every woman. But he also is really 
intensely focused on Enjolras. His whole thing is that he's like a cynic. He doesn't believe in the revolution, but he really likes Enjolras. And so the, by the end, they, they describe Grantaire as loving and venerating Enjolras. Oh. And yes. <laughs> and so by the end of the story, I assume people know this because Slamis is very popular, but a lot of the characters die by the end because it's the French Revolution. So yeah. um, though Enjolras is not depicted as canonically like returning Grantaire's feelings that do seem to be there. By the end, uh, the rebellion is getting sort of quashed, uh, and Angela and Grantaire end up trapped in a the cafe, I think, where they've been planning the revolution by the National Guard, and Grantaire does a couple of things that he hadn't done throughout the book. So he announces himself to be one of the rebels, which is a thing that he hadn't done before because he sort of was like just along for the ride. Yeah. Um, and then he goes over to Enjolras knowing that they're going to die and basically asks Enjolras permission to like die with him. So he goes over to, he says, vive la République. He goes over to Enjolras. He asks him, do you permit it? And then Enjolras grasps his hand with a smile that I'm reading from the book now. Mm-hmm. The smile was finished when the report was heard. The report being the gunshot. Enjolras pierced by eight bullets remained backed against the wall as they had nailed, as if they had nailed him there. Only he bowed his head. Grantaire, stricken down, fell at his feet. So they sort of they die like in a lover's embrace, basically yeah. at the end, which is like kind of the classic tragic queer ending that you would expect from something like this. Um, but it's intimate, and they love each other, and they've like made this declaration about their, you know. So it sounds like this one's kind of moving from queer coding to mm-hmm. queer canon. Right. So to me, it feels like in the book, they are queer coded. Obviously, I'm sure a lot of scholars would disagree. Um, But at this point, with the stage productions as they are, we're moving towards full queer canon, which I appreciate. Um, So that's just, I didn't know any of this about these characters. And I am intrigued to have learned it. Yeah. And it it made me happy to hear. Because... Thanks, AO3. Thanks, AO3. Exactly. I wouldn't have even known about this ship. Because really. You're just listening to the soundtrack. And I'm listening to the soundtrack. Here. What do you want from me? <laughs> it's not in the soundtrack. But I think that's all I have to say about that. I just thought it was interesting because you sort of are like, I'm sorry, people are shipping characters from Les Mis. Like what's, what could possibly be there? But something, yeah. there, there is some there there. I think it's just interesting because it is the only bit of theater that's on the yep. list. I mean, I I have to imagine that, as in the case of a lot of other things we've talked about, the release of the film led to a, like a fair amount of this right. fan fiction, because that always seems to be the way. So, all right, that was a, a pleasant surprise, I thought. And another one that I don't know if I'll call this a pleasant surprise, but something that I found a lot more interesting than I expected to when I dug into it was the uh, the film versions, the new film versions of Stephen King's It. So mm-hmm. they've made two of them in recent years. Uh, you probably have encountered this if you're on fandom on the internet because these characters, Eddie and Richie, were kind of everywhere for a minute. I think they had to have been like the top ship of Tumblr a year or two ago or whenever this these movies were coming out. But I always was just sort of like, oh, okay. I mean, it's a horror movie. I'm not really interested in that. And then also it's just like, you know, to be honest, more white guy ships. Like there are just so many of them. <laughs> 
<laughs> but the uh, Richie, the character, it, I know that they're just kids in the first movie. And then in the second movie, there's like adult versions of them. And I think mm-hmm. probably flashback kid versions of them too. Um, sure. Which I only think because I remember seeing pictures of Bill Hader and Finn Wolfhard together in interviews and they both play Richie. So this one was actually a lot more interesting and layered than I expected because this is not pulled from nowhere. This is a uh, pretty canonically queer subplot of this film. I think there's debate about whether or not it is uh, requited, but it is. there's not a lot of debate about there being queer subtext. Richie, who is canonically not straight, I guess I don't think he declares himself to be gay, so we don't really know what his sexuality is, but he's canonically not straight. And then Eddie's pretty clearly queer coded though he is not ever explicitly say that he's not straight and then in canon richie is in love with eddie he carves their initials together on the town's kissing bridge i think as children and then he goes back at the end of the second movie to re-carve them after eddie spoiler alert again has died so yes uh Which, obviously, that's not something that, like, just pals do. This is clearly supposed to be some subtext. Um, and they don't ever get to be together because Eddie dies. But the implication is that at least there's a one-sided, you know, romance here. Potentially, it could also have been requited. Now, this one gets complicated because, on the one hand, it's, like, cool that we have this big-budget studio movie that clearly has queer subtext and some, like, Queer canon. Text. Yeah. yeah, queer text, uh, which is not something that you often get from this type of movie. But then you're sort of asking the question, like, well, if they were going to go halfway there, then why not go all the way, right? Like, mm-hmm. why do we have to read between the lines and see that, yeah, obviously Richie's in love with Eddie, but, like, they don't ever talk about it. And and it seems like Eddie might be queer and interested in Richie, but uh, let's just, like, leave that unsaid before Eddie dies and then we'll never know. <laughs> right. Um, So I think there are probably a lot of things going on here. I read a really interesting um, like think piece about it and learned some details that I didn't know, like the fact that this one of these movies begins with the like queer bashing of a character that ends up dying. So there is sort of the the question of if you're going to have this movie where you've got one gay character that dies at the beginning... (laughs) You yes. got one gay character that's in love with his best friend. And then we've got this third character that like is maybe queer and maybe loves him back, but he also is going to die by the end. And it sort of becomes this issue of how many of our gays do we want to bury in this movie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, is it better to just leave things ambiguous and let people read what they want from the films or, or to say like, yes. To just like kill multiple gay characters before they can have a happy ending. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I think there probably is an element of that. I will say Stephen King has said that he both loves this adaptation and specifically loves the love story between Richie and Eddie. So he is in favor of this. And I guess I didn't see him say explicitly that he had like intentionally planted queer subtext in the novel, but it mm-hmm. this definitely is something that people have been discussing since that novel came out. So they made a 1990 movie of it. Um, which was, I don't know, like four years after the novel came out or something. So in the early days of the discussion of the subtext of the novel. And uh, Dennis Christopher, the actor who played Eddie in that version of it, 
has talked about how at the time he wanted to include discussion of Eddie's sexuality in that movie, but but being 1990, the filmmakers sort of shied away from it. Yeah, and it was a made-for-TV movie too, which is maybe yeah. a so. But but it just brings to to light the fact that clearly this is a discussion that's been happening the entire time that this story and these characters have existed. And so, on the one hand, I think it's good to see that we're kind of moving in a more explicit queer direction with it at least right like we're getting that obviously Richie is queer we're seeing that Eddie is like probably queer though we're not saying it in the in the film and so I do think that's progress but yeah there is sort of I understand a little bit of what's going on with the filmmakers here where you're reticent to be like yes they're together and in love and now Eddie's dead (laughs) but it's still like even if Eddie's not canonically queer you are leaving your one gay guy just like sad and alone at the end with mourning the loss of (laughs) yeah the story is not written structurally in a way to allow you to reinterpret it in a way that's not just like tragic and sad and like right but i guess you another one of these sort of hope i would think i know that the subtext of it or at least like the the themes of it are about um the pennywise clown comes and is turning the town on on themselves or on each other and it sort of seems to be explicitly the message of the book is like against the way the terrible ways that we treat each other i think the queer character at the beginning who gets killed for that i think obviously the book is not in favor of it stephen king is not in favor of it the message of it is supposed to be that we should all not turn on each other (laughs) and you know so it is interesting to think like I don't know how you turn these specific elements of it that have to happen in the story into a what would be like the less quote-unquote problematic version of this queer storyline today you know yeah but I guess you're supposed to imagine like maybe the happy ending is that Richie will learn to accept himself and be out and proud and like in the you know, future the, the loss of the loss of his first love has hopefully led him to be like i gotta just be me and, and yeah so i think that's the the happy ending that you have to sort of write in your own mind <laughs> but or in your fan fiction <laughs> exactly in your fan fiction that's what we're here for so yeah there was a lot more going on here than i expected from just my first blush reaction to it so i'm yeah i was actually pleasantly surprised to see that there was a lot going on there so does that lead Sort of into our our last category of ships we're going to cover, which are these like interesting old school legacy early, yeah. like not early days, because we've covered a lot of canon that obviously started a long time ago, and people have been shipping. I mean, we talked right about now. Sherlock Holmes for God's sake and Les Mis, right? <laughs> right. But yes, you're right. There's like this legacy ship thing going on, which I... from like the '90s, like specifically right. from the '90s. Well, that, this does lean into that because clearly people have been shipping Richie and Eddie since the 80s yeah but yeah we have what is a show that that neither of us knew anything about when we first came across this though it's this very interesting example of like we were both very much tv kids oh yeah safe to say and the show started airing in the mid 90s to late 90s so perfectly within my awareness of watching television i don't know if you did this but when i was a kid i used to get the tv guide of like what was premiering in the fall and like make a list of all the shows i wanted to oh yeah 1000% and i have no recollection of the show <laughs> no me neither i mean to be fair when it started we would have been i think like 7 
So we wouldn't have been choosing to watch it. I think we would have been watching it if our family was watching it. And it seems like they weren't, <laughs> they weren't I guess, watching yeah. it. I guess none of our parents were into the, the Sentinel. Sentinel. But maybe they should have been. That's what, by the way, that's what we're talking about is yeah. the Sentinel. So this is one that was interesting because when we first came across it, I was like, the Sentinel, what's that? Never heard of it. And then I realized in the recesses of my brain that I had encountered the Sentinel before, but not in the context of the television show. But I will more on that later. So the the pairing here is Jim Allison and Blair Sandberg. This show is like basically just a buddy cop procedural with some kind of mythical elements to it. Mm -hmm. So the Sentinel is uh, Jim Ellison. So a Sentinel in the context of this show is a person with these super heightened senses. So he can like, you know, hear crazy well and smell crazy well and all of that business. Um, And then his partner is this guy, Blair Sandberg, who is, uh, I don't actually know if this is, how they phrase it in the show but this is how they phrase it in the fandom a guide so he's paired with uh jim because sometimes you know jim's senses can get the better of him and he needs this guy who can help him stay you know you know grounded or something Mm -hmm. like that while while the two of them are doing their crime fighting so jim's a cop blair is i guess an anthropology student (laughs) (laughs) who comes in with all of the knowledge of anthropology to help him use his senses to fight crime. Now, the concept of a sentinel and a guide is something that I had encountered before because it has trickled into all kinds of fandom writing. It has become decoupled from the show, The Sentinel, and is basically just a trope that you can write Mm -hmm. in any fandom. So take, you know, any two, oftentimes it is like, cop partners or something but any two people who might have a, a a need for these sort of senses you make one of them a sentinel you make the other one a guide and then boom you got your own au yeah um so this is a thing i had seen but i had never really questioned like what is this where, where it came from, from? <laughs> and this is where it comes from is this show the sentinel so i guess i'll give you a little rundown of the canon of the ship because it mm-hmm. does seem to be fair There's a lot of evidence. I get where people are coming from. So (laughs) early on in the fourth episode of the show, Blair, something happens to his apartment. It's destroyed. And he asked to move in with Jim for a week. And then he just never moves out. He stays living with, with Jim for the rest of the series. They are like close roommate, best friends while they're doing all of this. And they don't ever question it, which is like, that is fanfic if I've ever heard it's it. It's true. Um, it's also like classic 90s TV writing of like, this thing happened. Don't worry about it. <laughs> they just live together now. It's fine. Right. And you're, well, and and I'm willing, that's a perfect example of me being perfectly willing to suspend my disbelief because you're sort of like, yeah, they live together. Like, I don't need a good reason for that because the result is what I want, right? I want yeah. them to live together. Yeah, I'm not complaining about it being see. 90s TV writing. I think I actually like it. It's like we've talked about before of like, in older things that used to just replace actors all the time and never comment on it. I'm like, yes. Yeah. I know I'm watching a TV show. It makes sense for them to be together more often. Go for it. I don't care. Right. Like give them a reason to live together because it's just better for the show. I get it. So then in the first episode of the second season, apparently Blair gets offered a research project that would cause him to sort of sever their partnership for a year. And he ends up turning it down, explaining to Jim, it's about friendship. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, then later in season two 
some drama happens where there's like this weird drug that Blair gets dosed with and he gets these terrible delusions and Jim talks him down and then Blair collapses in his arms and Jim gently cradles and rocks him. I mean, it's that's fanfic all over the place. In the third season, Jim somehow loses his superpowers. Don't know how that happens. And then the two of them get choked up because they're worried this means they're not going to be partners anymore because the oh. only reason they're partners is the uh, oh. census. Blair admits he's been stalling on his project in order to stay with Jim longer. I guess the, the premise for the two of them working together is that Blair is like doing a study on yeah. Jim, right? Then in season four... Blair dies, straight up dies. He gets drowned by a bad guy. Jim refuses to accept that he is dead. And to to the horror of onlookers, he like keeps giving him mouth to mouth. And then Jim has a vision. I guess they each have like spirit animal representations of themselves as part of this. And so he sees a vision of their animal spirits, the panther and the wolf, uh, leaping into each other, merging and becoming one. And then Blair comes back to life. Okay. I mean, hell yeah, this is fan fiction. And then later, towards the like middle air, and I don't know how many episodes there were of the fourth season, Blair finishes his dissertation, that's what he's writing, about Jim. But Jim has decided he doesn't want his secrets to be published. And then the dissertation actually, like somebody who shouldn't have it, finds it, and the details come out. And then Blair, to protect Jim, says that he made the whole thing up, destroying his entire oh, academic dear. career. Oh no! So that people will stop bothering Jim about his special senses. So obviously so there's sacrifice. a lot. There's a lot going on here. They're so close. There's sacrifice. There's devotion. They live together for no reason just because it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> and so I came across some interesting quotes from people. Again, all of this, so everyone should know. Well, not all of this, but a lot of this is coming from fanlore.org. So I found some interesting quotes from fans from like back in the day of the show talking about how this show is like a gateway into queer fandom or slash ships. So people say, this person says, the Sentinel, it's a gateway drug. (laughs) Unlike many fandoms where it takes a slash colored view to even begin to see the couple as possible, Jim and Blair come across as well on their way to a relationship, if not already involved in one in canon. My mother, five minutes into her first ever viewing of the show, asked me if they were lovers. <laughs> All the ease of canon without the pesky canon getting in the way. Okay. And then someone else says, in the slash circles I inhabit, the Sentinel seems to have been everyone else's waiting pool. It's the fandom where you get your toes wet because the actual show is like intro to slash 101. Jim and Blair are one of the most married male-male couples I've ever seen. And compared to some of the other subtext I work with, Providing evidence for their relationship is a walk in the park. I mean, you gotta love it when the canon is just, like, all there for you, right? The ship is right there on the screen. Yeah. So it is interesting to take its journey back into, like... To find the origin of the tropes. (laughs) Exactly! To find the origin of the tropes. Because, honestly, not just the Sentinel Guide trope that has led to fanfic, but, like, moments from this their relationship are things I have seen happen both in other shows canonically and obviously in in fan fiction. So it's an influential yeah. show uh, and influential to the fandom. Yeah. And so it's interesting because then the last coupling that we're going to talk about is in some ways the opposite of mm-hmm. the Sentinel. So the last pairing is Rodney McKay and John Shepard from Stargate Atlantis. 
which aired in 2004, from 2004 to 2009. And if the Sentinel is like a, a gateway into slash fandom, mm-hmm. uh, the way that uh, this is described on fanlore.org is that Stargate Atlantis is not a quote unquote threshold fandom. But instead, people with an interest in shipping from other fandoms came into the Stargate Atlantis fandom and started shipping these two characters. Which is not to say there's no evidence in the show for like their relationship or sure. their, their pairing, but it's just, yeah, an interesting reverse. So they said that the, the Stargate Atlantis brought in shipping communities in kind of like in waves almost, which, mm-hmm. is, which is interesting. So initially from the wider Stargate universe... And then Star Trek Enterprise fans who were unhappy with that show, which, Mm -hmm. fair, I also only watched the first season of Enterprise, and I didn't move to another fandom. I was just like, well, this is garbage. I guess I'm done watching Star Trek now. (laughs) But Um, if you'd been engaged in, uh, like, shipping fandom, you would have known that everybody was leaving Enterprise to go over to Stargate. Yes. And then they talk in other waves of, like, I guess as the slash was growing within Stargate Atlantis, it drew in other folks interested in slash. They talk about from pop slash, which is a real person slash community around like NSYNC in the, in the Backstreet Boy. I didn't even realize that was a thing that was happening back in the NSYNC Backstreet Boys days. As we are learning, there is slash for everyone and everything. <laughs> it's at all times. Forever. At all times. And interestingly enough, they also mentioned that the Smallville community ended up moving. I don't know why. That seems Smallville to Stargate Atlantis. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> um, but what I liked about this and in the fanlore.org is it also brought me to a piece called The Wave Theory of Slash. Because mm-hmm. uh, in the initial article, they describe the McKay Shepherd as being a little bit like of a first or second wave and I was like, what does that mean? This is not terminology I'm familiar with. <laughs> so the wave theory of Slash is this idea that there are four waves of Slash fiction. there will be more as we move Could forward be. in history. Where like phase one was sort of what's being described with the Sentinel is like there's so much evidence present. And this kind of aligns with, I think, what we're, we talk about a little bit with our queer baiting scale. One is the characters are never in a room together. I'm not quite sure right. what's happening. That's it's phase four. And five is there's all the evidence in the world. Why aren't these characters together? So that's kind of phase one. So phase one is this character-based um, stories with Slash, and it's all like very based in the show, very like drawing out the evidence, ending up with the characters being together. Oh, another thing that's interesting about phase one is they mentioned like, these are not like time constraints. So people still write phase one slash stories okay, now. Gotcha. And I guess theoretically could have written phase four slash stories in the Back of the day. Well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Basically, as you move through the phases, you get more and more decoupled from the canon uh, and more and more to AUs, less and less like there has to be evidence present in the story uh, for the slashing to happen. And by the time mm-hmm. you get kind of into phase four, you have this sort of like migration of people who are coming into a fandom for the slashing of it all, having nothing to do with the canon or what the thing is. So they describe phase four as multimedia slashes, like the only admission requirement for a male TV character to be slashed is a penis. I'm obsessed with this 
next sentence here. The notion that there was something special about Kirk and Spock, etc., that made them slashable is viewed with tolerant amusement by the fourth waivers. Right. <laughs> Who needs uh, canon to support it? No, any anyone can fuck, which, yeah. you know, fair. <laughs> it's true. I think, too, as we've gone through, like, what attracts people to fan fiction, what attracts people to slash right? A lot of our theories have been like, what is it about the canon that draws people into writing the fan fiction, the relationship with the canon, the emotional attachment to the characters. But this is, no, it's the slash. It's the slash that draws people to the slash. They just enjoy it, which is fair. Yeah. It's just, I I think really what we've discovered in our efforts to understand the various things that draw people to fan fiction and fandom in general is that there are a lot of things a lot of very different things that draw people to this and you could be coming at it for completely different things from someone else so I think there's going to be examples that we'll get to in later episodes where we can kind of return and maybe find more scholarship around like this like idea of people just roving around looking Mm -hmm. for things to slash um yeah I know we have a couple of examples coming up that uh, where the characters are not really together a lot. So it, it doesn't seem sure. like there's as much uh, canon People are support. hungry for queer ships. They yes. want them and they'll make them happen if they have to, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know that the McKay Shepard is specifically that, but it was just interesting to read about like, people are just showing up to slash. Yeah. For the sake of slashing. All right. Well, that's fascinating. I am, have appreciated uh, dipping our toes into some less modern, uh, you know, slash relationships. Definitely. It's, I think in all the cases where we've been able to go back and see where things originated, it's interesting. And again, it all feeds back into this, like, how did all this stuff develop? Why are, why are people pursuing fan fiction? And the more and more we learn, the more fascinating it is. And it really is a diverse set of, of reasons. I'm appreciating developing a richer understanding of it all. So I think that is that is the end of our journey today. Again, uh, if we have talked about anything today that you uh, that we like, like just talked about wrong, <laughs> in your yeah. opinion, or if there's anything that you know, we missed or like or, going, there is a fascinating story here. Yeah, know? or like if I was totally wrong about clants, and there's a lot going on there that was not apparent to me, please. But yeah, follow up to with uh, us reach out to us we've got an email address ltbkpod at gmail.com and we're on twitter and tumblr at ltbkpod so easy to find us anywhere yep. what are we talking about next week are we doing another weird thing or are we back to the normal format so next week we will be talking about the thing that we're going to be talking about <laughs> ah yes and that thing is um x-men uh specifically Cherick. <laughs> Cherik, everybody. What an inviting name for a ship. <laughs> uh, Magneto and Professor Xavier, Charles and Eric. Yeah. Cherik. Pro- Professor Magneto, he could be called, or they could be called. Yeah. Promag. Promag. We like Promag <laughs> a lot. That's my favorite. I prefer it to Cherik. Yeah, Cherik you know, is, you know, it's it sounds like a chair. And then you're like, Ick. So that'll do it for us today. Uh, if you would like more of our episodes, new episodes come out every other Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 